I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, I'm talking with James Trockmay from Points for Purpose. Points for Purpose is a pioneer in cause-related marketing, transforming consumer rewards into charitable gifts and giving consumers control over their rewards through card-linked offer technology. James is a deep subject matter expert in the digital commerce space, and I just wanted to get James on the show to, to unpack the history, the mechanics, some of the particulars of coupons and offers, points, how all of that evolved into an ecosystem that nowadays can support something as complex and something as, as variable as what Points for Purpose is able to offer. So we're going to go deep with James. We'll start with paper coupons in the aisles of an IGA 40 years ago and work our way through to today's card-linked, app-based, and then otherwise, you know, whatever comes next kind of environment uh, for digital commerce. So all of that and more after the break. And then after that, we have a brief postscript on the shopping mall. Uh, To paraphrase those who like to almost quote Mark Twain, it seems that reports of the shopping mall's death are greatly exaggerated. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Okay, well, we are joined by James Trockmay as the Chief Operating Officer of Points for Purpose in North America. And uh, Points for Purpose has just launched uh, recently, although I probably a couple months ago now, James, uh, in North America. And so we're uh, pleased to have you as part of DCA and pleased to have you here for the conversation today about kind of from the basics to, to what's going on in consumer engagement and consumer rewards. Um, where are you joining us from? I am currently in Florida because I am supporting a cause dear and near to me. I'm taking care of my 88-year-old aunt. And so I'm normally out of Cleveland, but for the time being, I am in Florida. Excellent. Well, that's good. And, you know, it's uh, August is is maybe not as crowded. I don't know if this is true. Is is August a little less crowded in Florida? It would seem to me that that's not the main month when people say, hey, let's go. It's not the main month, but people who live here are busy up and about. So uh, there's still pretty much the same uh, regular traffic that you would expect anywhere else. There you go. You know, Florida's Florida's a popular place. Well, look, as as you and I have talked in in advance of this and, you know, we're going to dive in and really kind of talk from from some of the basics to some of the more interesting kind of ongoing current things that are happening in uh, uh, consumer rewards and consumer engagement. But I just want to start at the the basics, right? Which is, you know, we all, I mean, it's ubiquitous now, right? We redeem discounts, points, rewards, but sometimes we're a little fuzzy about how it all works. And so I want to start here. If we go back a few decades, and I'll use like in my case to when I was a kid, so now we're talking like four decades to the IGA grocery store, my mom's walking around with a paper coupon from, you know, the Toronto Star for 20% off Maxwell House coffee. In that scenario, like who paid what to who on that exactly in order to get that stuff to happen? 
Yeah, so the old-fashioned couponing, which has worked well and it still works for, for many things, is the couponing is usually paid for by the product manufacturer or supplier. And in this case, you really have to figure out whether that product is of interest to the consumer. So today, uh, you know, newspapers play a, a lesser role, but back in the day, people, you know, spent a lot of time clipping coupons and some people still do, I think, is there sort of a generation gap in this respect. And then evolved towards direct mail. And again, it's the product and services suppliers who pay for, for, for this to have their products promoted at uh, retail outlets. Again, it really looks, you get these mailers in your inbox uh, at home or uh, and you look through them and there are a bunch of coupons in there and most of them are probably not relevant to most people today. So they end up in the trash. So that's what's happening now with this type of reward program. And it's not particularly tailored uh, by the retailer itself or by a card issuer. It really is done by the, uh, the brands that are trying to promote their products. And, and the accounting that happened on the back end of that, and again, let's, you know, it's 1979, right? It's Maxwell House and, and the IGA and Toronto Star, all that stuff. I mean, the accounting on the back end has to be that the IGA needs to, I guess, aggregate all the different coupons they've got so that they're not the ones that take the 20% hit. They push it back up the chain to the, the brand. And then the brand somehow what probably credits their account or something like that. Correct. There is a back office process, which is in the case of paper coupons manual. So you have to go through that and process that. But it evolved over time because now with the QR codes and, uh, and barcodes, et cetera, you're able to digitize that to an extent and then upload those files on the back end to whomever the brand uh, whose coupon you're honoring is and then settle at the end of uh, usually at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter, depending on what uh, the agreement may be between the brand and the retailer. I mean, you start talking about manually working on any of this stuff, and I'm thinking about what's the you know, average value of the average coupon, whatever, and activity-based costing and everything, and going, whoa, uh, that, that may not even be worth it at some level, right? Like the coupons might be worth it in the sense that they create a sort of an incentive, but the whole thing is pretty rough. So automating that, obviously, pretty important. So, so if we imagine, I'm just thinking through like the next, to my way of thinking, a next step from there, I always did, we had these uh, on the insides of the pop, bottles there were like the little rubber i don't know what you even call that on the lid and then you'd collect those or whatever and if you got enough or you got certain kinds where you turn them in so you know if you've got a program like that you're collecting stuff and and then you turn them in every so often you get a prize or a reward or whatever what you know who's who's paying for that stuff to all happen and who who bears the cost how's that work so uh, very similar to the, the, the couponing type business uh, where you're, uh, to use the uh, soda cap uh, example, where you have to peel off that po bonus point and then that goes back to the brand. And so the consumer has to actually now, you, you're shifting the work away from the retailer to the consumer who has to mail it in. So it's a, a little bit better for the retailer who doesn't have to worry about that. And so what they get is the uh, extra purchase as people are looking at this and trying to accumulate the sufficient number of points or the right points, because sometimes you lose, you don't always win, and you need a certain number of winning capsules in order to be able to redeem a prize. So it really was, I would call, what I would call the infancy of gamification before um, mobile phones and, and certainly smartphones uh, were available. 
And to some extent, that still runs in, in some countries around the world, but it's kind of a, a burdensome. And uh, it also requires some degree of manual processing on the back end for the brand to then have to open uh, the envelopes and sort all of that and then send the prize, whatever that prize may be, to the consumer who's made uh, the sufficient number of points to earn that reward. So it's, a, it's like a board game, old-fashioned uh, gamification with the physical interaction between the consumer, the product, peeling off whatever label, and then sending that back in and redeeming it uh, for the prize. You know, as, and using the example, I was thinking, I think we were talking with a guest about this a while ago, but thinking about the example of McDonald's uh, Monopoly game, right? And one of the things that's pretty brilliant about that one is that you're in that, and in a way that feels like it's fun, you're actually making the consumer herself or himself do all the accounting for you, right? Like they, they're the ones that are keeping the stickers and shoving them in the right spot and all that sort of thing. You, you don't, so you're trying to limit, you know, the amount of, of burden. There is actually a lot of activity going on there. You could even consider it friction, except for it's fun, or at least it is for some people. It was for me. And so that's an interesting, you know, kind of a, a thing on the gamification is like, well, if you do this right, you might be able to get, you know, you're in a perfect world. You kind of get the consumer to be almost excited about figuring out how many times they've eaten at McDonald's or how many times they've shopped at, at the IGA, right? That's right. So it was really what I, what I was talking about earlier, sort of dividing the labor up so it, it makes it easier for the retailer and in this case, in terms of a, of a QSR like McDonald's and others who have these types of uh, activities, there still is a considerable back office cost in terms of, uh, of, of handling the physical coupons because uh, those either have to be mailed back in or redeemed in store once you've completed your card. And it would be the same thing for anything that has to do with having a card punched with a hole or star or stamped with a, uh, a rubber stamp in a and the brand's logo on it. When you have so many things, you earn a free cup of coffee. So, you know, that might be Starbucks or in, in the case of Canada, Tim Hortons. But it's still labor intensive and there is a cost associated with that. And so digitizing all of that is, uh, is really where things have tended to evolve since the, uh, uh, the advent of, uh, of, of smartphones and, uh, and really the, uh, what I would call the use of the internet as an appliance no longer just something that's extraordinary, but everybody uses the internet on their phone, on their tablet, or on their computer as a regular household appliance. So that's making things more efficient. And we see some evolutions that have occurred over the years in that space. Now everybody has an app. That's the that's the issue. Every brand right, has an right. app. Right. And that's and that kind of gets to in the app and that well maybe we can jump then to you know, we, so we imagine the you know points that you're developing. We mentioned kind of the the McDonald's um, and and back you know still thinking about like a physical card you put stickers on there. Or you mentioned a card that gets punched, and there there's some simplicity to that that actually is you know uh, probably pretty good in a way. But there's just so many limitations, and to the point you made too, like come some manual accounting and that kind of stuff. And so obviously there's an advantage when you move into the kind of the digital world. There's a lot of things you can do you couldn't before. And we're imagining now, you know, where credit cards come in and, and how cards create kind of opportunities. And then you've mentioned apps. Maybe, maybe we start with cards for starters and, then the, and in terms of like how this evolved, you know, when did credit cards or card payments at all, I guess, come into play in terms of tracking, you know, rewards and engagement, maybe with a 
either a brand or a retailer. I think we're all familiar with, and it makes total sense to me anyway, that you know I have a card and the card rewards me for using the card because of course there's reasons why that makes sense. But then the, then the shift some time ago was the card is going to be a channel through which I have an incentive or a reward or whatever for doing some things in the marketplace. Correct. And I think I would say that at the beginning, really, when a card started bringing up loyalty as a differentiator, initially it was for things that were associated with other brands. So airlines and hotels come to mind, you know, and various card issuers partner with various airlines or hotel groups. And so a lot of people are familiar with that concept. But again, it's, it's miles or nights or you know, a free breakfast or whatever at the hotel you're staying at, but it still has some limitations. And from that, there's been an, a, a secondary evolution that's really gone away from the traditional points that you have to redeem in a kind of a proprietary, completely proprietary loop, because you could only use those points for miles or nights or free breakfast for a hotel stay to cash rewards. And so cash rewards have really picked up and everybody now is issuing cash reward based cards. And uh, they fund those programs through the interchange fees, uh, whether debit or credit, and all the card issuers do it. American Express, uh, Visa, MasterCard, Discover Card, all have these type of cash back reward incentives. But those are are still somewhat better than miles or points because you can uh, get a statement credit or you can redeem them back as a, a cash transfer to your bank account. Or you can also use whatever proprietary mall they may have on their consumer site when you log into your issuer's website where they have partnered with some retailers where you can basically trade in your, your points for merchandise that, that they sponsor. It started very early on. Uh, American Express was actually one of the leaders in, in, in this space. And then uh, all of the other card uh, brands followed suit. Now everybody does it. So that's where the market is at in terms of the debit and credit card business now, where you can either get miles, nights, or store points, because even now you have co-branded cards with retailers that could be the Home Depot or Lane Bryant or a Tractor Supply Company. They all have their Visa or MasterCard type cards, and that opens up the game a little bit for people to be able to do more things. And it's more convenient because it appears on their statement, and as they log on, there are some easier ways of, uh, of redeeming, but it's still somewhat in a closed loop environment. You mentioned interchange fees. and I wanted to touch on that real quick. And, and just a question that I have, you had mentioned the relationship between cashback and, and interchange fees. And so number one, I presume that the reason the cashback has become popular is just because it's, it has been found to be very popular with, with consumers, right? So I assume that that's because it drives consumer behavior the way that we want to. Is that basically the answer? Yeah, because cash back, everybody likes cash because everybody can find a use for cash and they're not necessarily confident that they may accumulate enough points for a flight or a night. So 
cash back then becomes a much more attractive value proposition for the consumer saying that, well, if I use that card a lot, I'm going to earn X percent on these types of purchases. And then there are even tiers, uh, 2% on every purchase and then 5% for your preferred category, which may be uh, gasoline, for example. And so as people pick the categories for which they want to get the cash back, then they can accumulate those rewards and redeem them and get the discounts that are more meaningful to them because it impacts their purchasing power directly. So the cash back, I mean, that makes, you know, it's it's fungible and it's flexible and it doesn't have, yeah, that makes all sense. And then in relation to the interchange fees, interchange fees are, are when they, you know, for some folks anyway, when you get into it, sort of a little bit controversial because there's usually some legislative proposal floating around that might change them or whatever. But in any event, uh, I think I'm right when I say that, number one, they're more complicated than most people think. In other words, it's like the, exactly what the interchange fee is, is varies more than uh, than you'd think. Um, but then the other thing is that it's, uh, I think they are higher in the U.S. than they tend to be elsewhere. And I'm curious um, if that means, and, and we were talking just before we got on the uh, the podcast, James, about how you are you are a trans-Pacific uh, guy right now. You're working on stuff both uh, both in North America and in, in Australia. And so, is there is is there maybe broadly less cashback activity taking place outside the U.S. than in the U.S. because the interchange fees are, are lower, or, or is that not right? To some extent, yes, and it ver- it will vary by country and depending on the culture and the banking regulations and various jurisdictions. But in the U.S., it's really been on the forefront of uh, innovation in terms of developing these new products. And with regards to the interchange, there are also different sets of fees depending on whether you're using a debit card versus a credit card, because a debit card is typically backed by your checking account. And so the payment is instantaneous. There's no grace period like there is on a credit card, whereas on a credit card, because of the grace period, Uh, which may vary anywhere between 20 to 30 days on average, there is a cost associated with that. And the interchange fees are typically higher. You know, absolutely. And I I know there's a, you know, very different culture in terms of the use of of debit cards in some places rather than others. And I think in areas where there's, you know, a real incentive to use the credit cards, uh, which I think correlates with the interchange fees being higher. In the U.S. is perhaps the market where you have the most, credit card holders versus debit card holders. Debit is much more popular outside the U.S. than it is in the U.S. The banks have been pushing debit in the U.S. in an effort to minimize check usage. And uh, it's taken some time to gain traction, but now uh, people are comfortable using their debit card. And so when we look at all the methods and means of payments available today, they've all grown, including cash, in both uh, relative and absolute terms, the only payment method that's a net loser year over year is the paper check. So debit card in that respect has been gaining traction, but revolving credit products because of the exposure and the risk is something that is not necessarily popular with banks in every country. And also because of uh, regulatory and compliance issues with regards to consumer affairs uh, regulations in the various jurisdictions around the world, uh, there are some uh, limitations as to uh, how much revolving credit might be made available to an individual. For example, I think, and and this may no longer be true, but I I think at some point in Japan, you could not have more than uh, three or four revolving credit accounts. And beyond that, that was it. 
Whereas in the United States, it's uh, not uncommon for people to have multiple visas from multiple issuers, multiple MasterCards from multiple issuers. And in some cases, even co-branded American Express cards, like for example, uh, a USAA bank has an American Express card, as does Charles Schwab Bank. Those revolving credit products just represent a different risk management profile for the financial institutions that issue them. Right. And, and end up with a lot more, a lot more cards in the wallet for folks uh, in the U.S. especially. And then it's a battle to try and get the card that you've issued, you know, whatever institution you're, you're coming from to be the, the preferred one. And of course, that sets the competitive context against which presumably you know, you've got cash back and all of that that'll drive people's uh, behavior. Yeah, cash back, and then uh, and then obviously for our American listeners, uh, everybody's familiar with the infamous balance transfer offers that people mm-hmm. get either online or in their regular uh, paper mail. So uh, there's a lot of competition because everybody wa- wants to have on their portfolio uh, people who carry a balance. A credit card user that doesn't carry a balance is a less attractive credit card user, although a lower risk credit card user than one who does carry a, a balance, provided that, that that person is able to make the payments, then that becomes an attractive value proposition for the financial institution that issues the card. And we've even seen financial institutions getting out of the business for whatever reason and where their credit card portfolio was basically up for sale and bundled up for another issuer to pick it up because people wanted to have that high interest debt on their books because of the uh, people not able to pay up their balances in full was a good recurring source of revenue. I think we saw the news item was last week, maybe, that uh, the credit card debt in the U.S. had just popped up above a trillion, I think it was, because I think it had been like 900 and something billion. A trillion with a T. So uh, people in the United States carry an awful lot of credit card debt. The average household carries well over $5,000 in card debt. In historical context, apparently, and this is based on the articles I read about it, in historical context, it's not as alarming as it sounds. Uh, anything that starts with a T, a trillion, sounds like a lot of money, and it is, to be sure. But it's uh, apparently against the backdrop of uh, you know kind of some of the fundamentals. It's not as concerning. Well, on the cards, you know, merchant-funded or card-linked offers, you know, come in, and as as you may uh, know, you know, Digital Commerce Alliance was founded originally in 2014 as the card links association because it really was originally focused on card linking and you know that sort of started off in different places around the world in a way that created some more options and would love to get your sense of you know what what kind of did clo or card linked offers create that couldn't be done before well uh, so card card linking is a very interesting technology it's an implementation uh, value proposition more than it is a shiny new thing. So it depends on how you are going to use your card linking because you you could use your card linking for any number of purposes. But uh, what we are looking at, we think card linking is another way of basically uh, innovating and revolutionizing charitable contributions and loyalty programs, simply because it makes it far more accessible for people uh, once they link a card to a loyalty program to manage those rewards and uh, as many cards as they may wish to link, if they have the right platform, then it enables them to keep inside one wallet all of those cash equivalent rewards in a single place from which to manage and allocate how they want to use those cash rewards. 
So it can be for themselves. They want to save to make a large purchase and accumulate enough cash rewards and bundle all those cash rewards from the various cards they may have linked and make that purchase. They may want to redeem it. And oftentimes they do redeem it with the merchant uh, that is sponsoring the loyalty program. Usually about 80% of the time, uh, the earn and burn happens internally. But it also gives them the option of using their points elsewhere in a more open ecosystem. And that's what's new. That's what's sort of counterintuitive for loyalty programs, uh, old style loyalty programs, which is why would I allow people to use uh, my rewards points for purchases elsewhere? Although it is counterintuitive, what you find out is that when retailers, and this is what we've been starting to see in Australia, allow this to happen, uh, it develops brand loyalty because all of a sudden it says, yes, I don't use all my reward points at that same retailer, but I will keep going back to that retailer and make purchases because that retailer enables me, empowers me to use my points in a way that I want. And it's not necessarily tied to making purchases with those points at that retailer. I may use them differently. And that's where the advantage comes in with card linking as an enabling technology, where the card becomes a backup that is equivalent to the loyalty program. So you associate your card with that loyalty program. And every time you use that card, you're earning points in that loyalty program with that merchant who funds the program. And as a result of that, typically increases the value of the average basket by anywhere between 5 to 6% per receipt in that store and develops loyalty and word of mouth that other people then also want to jump in and join in the program because of its flexibility. I mean, in a way, it's a synthetic. I, one of the ways I think about this, and tell me if this seems right or if there's more nuance here, but it's a synthetic way or a virtual way of creating a, a store branded card. Now there's a bunch of things that are different there about it, but in a way, right. If, if it's an open enrollment kind of a thing, or if it's, you know, you can, I could just enroll any card into the thing or link any card, then, you know, in my mind, anyway, it's connected to that retailer, even though it's not, you know, branded with the retailer. Correct. So uh, I'll give you an example. You could have an airline branded credit card issued by a bank. And you could use that card to make purchases and you would still earn your miles. That doesn't change. On the other hand, when you link that same card to a loyalty program that is funded by a merchant, you're earning extra cash rewards with that merchant separate and distinctly from the miles that you might be earning with your airline branded card. So it allows the consumer by using the same card to basically double dip. I'm earning miles and I'm earning cash. But I'm earning cash not from my card issuer. I'm earning cash from the merchant whose loyalty program I linked my card to. Yeah. And there's a lot more there, I think, that can happen in that space when you start to you know, see you know, that's sort of the, the base case in a way. Right. And I'd be interested to get your sense of, of where you think it can be headed, because I think with a lot of the developments we've seen in, in the digital commerce space, you mentioned apps before. We haven't gotten into that too much, but it seems like there's a lot of possibilities here that go well beyond the original kind of use cases. Correct, because even the apps, if you have to have an app for every loyalty program out there, that's a lot of apps to manage on your device, right? So you may have a McDonald's app, you may have a Burger King, I'll be fair. 
with the brands outside both mm-hmm. big burger chains. I, I'm an equal opportunity guy on that stuff. And if, 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 if there's hamburgers, I'm there, basically. So I'm, I'm for it. We could also throw in, you know, I don't know, In-N-Out, Wendy's, all of it. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, you have that app and you can redeem, et cetera. And it, it does a pretty good job within that brand's ecosystem for people earning and redeeming, redeeming, but it's still earn and burn in a proprietary environment. Even though it's been digitized, it's still proprietary and it limits what you can use those rewards for. So the question then becomes, okay, how many points can I earn and how many burgers can I eat in a year or in a month? And that makes sense for me to go back every time and use those, uh, th- those points in a way that is somewhat limited because it's only for product at that particular franchise outlet. You mentioned digital wallets and, and it's a long way from walking through the, uh, the aisles of the IGA with a Maxwell house coupon, right. In terms of what's possible there. Right. So once we start to live in the world of the, maybe the general digital wallet, I don't know. I wonder what you think about that. Cause when I talk to folks about digital wallets, I think it's getting, that term's getting used in a few different ways. I think of my Apple wallet because I've kind of managed to get a lot of stuff on there on my iPhone. But there's also, you know, proprietary digital wallets that are being created within apps that maybe have a narrower use or maybe they're intended to have a broad broad use. Um, and so right now it feels like it's kind of like the early days. I mean, in a sense, it's the early days for digital wallets, but it's growing fast, right? It is. And I would say Apple got a head start on everybody because they created their own ecosystem and they basically signed up every card issuer brand and logo, right? So you can put any number of cards in your Apple wallet, but you're still tied to uh, using that card in a traditional way, in fact, because what your Apple wallet does is becomes a substitute for the plastic card. So you're not displacing cash necessarily as much as you're not pulling a plastic card out of your wallet, you're just tapping your phone. So that provides an added degree of convenience. It even provides an added degree of security because the the card number and the Apple wallet is not the same as the one that is on your physical card. But at the same time, it has its limitations. It, It feels like the possibility maybe somewhere in all of this for simplification from a consumer's perspective and uh, it's hard to imagine that, I guess, in a way, because everything we're talking about is is about new possibilities and new things and everything. And that, of course, results in a situation where, from the consumer perspective, I think the frustration, if I put my consumer hat on, right, the frustration is, man, I got a lot of, you alluded to this earlier, I got a lot of different apps on my phone. And in truth, I don't open them as, I can guarantee you, I don't open them as often as the the, um, the retailers would like or the brands would like, right? Because there's so much going on. And, you know, and so then you say, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe if, if, if there was more action in a central wallet of some kind, maybe that's sort of the beginning of a solution. But I just wonder what you, you think, James, like in terms of where this heads. So if we, if we, let's just put it this way. If we're sitting here five years from now and, and the complexity is, has been reduced and consumers are happier with stuff because it's easier to manage than it was in way back in 2023, like how's that going to happen? Uh, well, that's a good question, and I don't have a crystal ball, but my sense is that digital wallets will still continue to play a very important role going forward, but they will most likely evolve to be less proprietary and less proprietary in terms of, of being able to aggregate points from multiple card brands and card issuers as well as uh, as retailers and providing uh, the consumer with a better way to have a 360-degree view of all their rewards in one place 
and be able to then decide how they want to allocate those rewards across the board. So this is exactly what we're trying to do with Points for Purpose and why we launched last June in the United States, simply because it makes it easier to have a single repository view of everything that you do with the cards that you decide to link to that wallet and uh, allow you to uh, use points any which way you want without being tied to a particular brand. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm glad you came back to Points for Purpose and because I think it's a great example of using an, an extremely sort of flexible way or at least you know getting after some of the great possibilities of, of using the card linking because it sort of maximizes consumer choice, right? In terms of saying, hey, I'm, I'm really excited about I don't know if it's the Epilepsy Foundation or some, th- some cause that I'm interested in, but it's not just that, right? It could be something else, another thing you're trying to achieve. And so, you know, hopefully it gets me more excited about using a particular payment form because I've connected it in. That's right. Although that is a new way of looking at things and somewhat counterintuitive, as I mentioned before, it doesn't take away from the existing programs that are out there. You can still use your cards in the, in the traditional loyalty card issuer type of ecosystem, it just enables you to use that same card to earn loyalty elsewhere. So your airline mileage card issuer won't see that those loyalty points revert back to them because they're not funding the program. So you will still earn your miles the traditional way, but because you're linking your card, you will also earn points with whomever you linked your cards to in terms of the loyalty program that you're interested in. And that also enables you to basically have a lot more flexibility. And when it comes to charitable contributions, which is really sort of uh, where I came into this in my conversations with the founder of Points for Purpose, Ivan Schwartz, and uh, when I started uh, uh, having these conversations with them, having been in the business of banking and cards and ATMs uh, most of my career, There was something I wanted to do that was different in terms of, okay, how can I use my knowledge of this industry to contribute something back that is more than just business? How can you put a profit to purpose? And there's nothing wrong with making a profit, with making a buck. And so that's why initially our tagline was the, the loyalty platform that gives you more or that gives back. And then we didn't quite ring right. It was simplified into get more give more because when people have access to more cash to more financial resources uh they're more inclined to to share to spread some of that around and it doesn't have to be in huge amounts and and this is a term that was coined by one of our technical partners that happens to be a canadian company which they called micro philanthropy because if you give even one dollar And the one million people give one dollar, it's the same as a big corporation writing a million dollar check to a a charity. And so it enables people to be more generous without breaking the bank, so to speak, because they don't have to go and dig in their in their wallet and and put something in a bucket. They don't have to go to a website and uh, give twenty five dollars on their debit or credit card or write a check and put it in the mail. All they need to do is use their card and then decide what percentage of their cash rewards they're willing to give back to a cause of their choice. And that way they have a direct accountability. They see where every dollar they contribute goes. You know, your comment resonates with me, James, about the, you know, there's a million dollar donation from the company. There's a, a million one dollar donations from people. And to me, it just highlights the importance of, of easy 
which is to say that, you know, if you're going to make a million dollar donation, obviously there's going to be at least a few meetings and it'll be a little involved, but that makes sense. It's a million bucks or, or even more, or, you know, whatever. On the other hand, people are very willing to give a dollar, something that they believe in, or even something that looks roughly good, right? But you have to make it really easy. And I think that's the critical point here is to say like, Hey, how do we, how do we facilitate? How do we grease the skids, make it as easy as possible. And then sure, people will give a dollar, right? If you do that. That's kind of what this is about at some level is is you're sitting back there trying to engineer against the backdrop of what is still ultimately um, a more even a more complicated system than I think a lot of people appreciate to make that complexity go away so that the consumer experiences, hey, this is easy to do. Yeah, it has to be seamless. So, you know, the consumer has to link their, their card, but they can link several cards if they so so choose. And based on uh, what they use those cards for, earn their classical rewards with the card assured, and at the same time, earn these extra cash rewards with the merchant-funded loyalty program. And discussions we've had with some retailers, we're even looking at incentivizing the uh, consumer by saying, for every dollar you give, we'll give a matching contribution of a dollar as well up to whatever that million dollar number is. Is it one million, two million, et cetera? And so that provides a leverage effect in addition to corporate giving and to charitable organizations and causes, whichever they may be. And they can be national, they can be global, but they can also be extremely local. It can be hyper-localized. It could be for something as simple as a nonprofit organization sponsoring a youth sports club for after-school programs that is more meaningful to you in your immediate community. So we can go from global to hyper-local, and that can be tailored very easily. We remove that friction. The only thing the consumer has to do is pick what cause they want to support and then go shop. I was reading a piece this morning kind of about the the demonstrated efficacy of matching gifts as a sort of technique for driving giving, you know, and, uh, and so that's an, an, an interesting example there in the, in the retail context. And then there, I think it's a matter of, of making sure that the retailers can sort of control it, you know, like they can kind of manage or target it uh, or whatever, as far as how much money is being spent and that they've got enough, I guess, you know, analysis or market intelligence to be able to make sure that they're not completely upside down on the whole thing, right? So that they know that, that, that it's working for them and the consumer and the, the charity. Correct. It has, to be, it has to be a win-win-win solution. So for the retailer, it means more sales and they might even put some additional incentives with promos on products with higher margins for a boost supporting a particular featured cause. And what we found out is if you give people too many choices, it's difficult for them to make a choice. So typically we would encourage the loyalty program uh, hosts to feature causes. And there are two ways of doing that. You, you, you can do that by uh, having a boardroom meeting and say, we're going to support this cause, that cause, and this cause, and sort of push it down the line to your, uh, to your loyalty program uh, members or you can reach out to your loyalty program members and say, here are the causes we're featuring, but we would like to know some of the causes that you're interested in supporting within your community. So even with a big brand uh, retailer, supermarket, et cetera, they can have nationally featured causes that they support, but they can also encourage at a local level consumers down to the zip code to support a very local cause and so you, we recommend usually featuring no more than three causes and working with the consumers to determine, you know, what's the cause of the month or the cause of the quarter that you want to support locally. 
And of course, you know, you can modulate that in a variety of ways, but that's basically the essence of being able to have a much more meaningful impact in your local community as a brand that is trying to develop loyalty in small town America, for example, where a lot of people uh, sort of feel, feel that they're being overlooked. That's a great point. I do think much as you want to give people choice and it's important for it to always be there, there's an aspect of leadership of of helping people to get excited about or motivated, motivated about something that you know we are going to do together. Like that's what community is and that's kind of what leadership is. And so finding that balance and then seizing those opportunities when they come up is great. And so I will, you know, you mentioned win, win, win. So I'll, I'll, you know, say that that's the, the three-way Pareto optimal exchange, right? You guys are in the business of trying to create probably maybe more directions than just three even, but just experiences for consumers that benefit, um, obviously a variety of parties in the commercial uh, marketplace, but also, you know, charities. And, and that's the sort of founding motivation of Points for a Purpose. Yes, we all have sort of personal histories and personal backgrounds that motivated us in developing this concept. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a latecomer to Points for Purpose. But when I was approached, that was exactly what attracted me to it. It was not just to make a buck, but it was like, how can I give a buck back? And if I can contribute to a business that helps people in their local community, then uh, I'm making a difference by doing something that's positive and by enabling commerce to occur the normal way with the least friction possible. Actually, I would say even frictionless. Uh, once you've done the initial card linking, that's it. Terrific. Well, you know, look, that's that's maybe a great place to leave it, James. I appreciate the conversation. I will say for people that are listening that your commentary and your kind of the things that you post on LinkedIn are particularly insightful, I'll say. And I think you spend a, a bit more time there than I, I do. I should I should be on there a little more. Maybe I should just be following the things that you say. But in any event, I knew that you were a wealth of information on this stuff and, and really grateful for your time today and uh, having this conversation with us. Hey, Dan, it was a pleasure and an honor. And I was very uh, happy to be able to have this conversation with you today. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. Okay, I promised at the outset a postscript on the state of the mall. CoreSight Research has released a really interesting document. You can easily find it uh, in Google titled The State of the American Mall, Competitive, Attractive, and Here to Stay. I think we've all seen some challenges that malls have had, and so the optimism in that title might be a little bit overblown, but they make some good points. A couple of just elements from the the study. Uh, From 21 to 22, retail sales at malls increased 11% to over $800 billion. Uh, Comparing to 2021, you know, maybe it's we're coming back from COVID, etc., so who knows about that, but... Uh, to me, a more compelling point was uh, at top tier malls, the most elite ones are expensive anyway ones, comparing 2019 to 2022, uh, foot traffic was up 12%. Ah, that's something, I think, when you're looking at 2019. So e-commerce didn't kill them all. Customers basically want both. Brands are now doing omni-channel marketing. So nearly everyone does both online shopping and in-person shopping. So brands have to be everywhere. And then if you Put this against the backdrop of commercial real estate more broadly. Office vacancy rates obviously are huge, 
But according to CBRE, CB Richard Ellis, this is a commercial real estate management firm, uh, the vacancy rate for retail space is 4.8%. The vacancy rate for offices is um, enormous, basically. I don't know if it's 25 or 30%, I think they said. 4.8% is the lowest level of vacancy. That's the retail space vacancy rate since they started tracking it 18 years ago. Maybe some of the leftover office space gets converted to retail. Uh, Not that that would work for very much of it or be easy to do. But the point is, affordable space might be coming online from the office side. There's still a lot of interest in having in-person shops available. So I wanted to reflect a little bit on transition and change in the following way. A couple of examples. You know, we had horses for, what, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years as a form of transportation. Bicycles did not get rid of horses. Cars did-ish. But what I would say is that you know, cars didn't get rid of bicycles completely and they didn't get rid of horses either in the sense that they continue to play a role. So that's one way in which you can have incremental movement. Uh, and who's no, who knows what comes after cars is that you keep everything and then they play a smaller role. Another example would be, you know, we moved in from a variety of different forms of writing from scrolls and there's vellum to books and books were a big development. And then, of course, it was the printing press. We didn't really have books, the codex stuff that was put together in what we would call a book until much later in history than I think we tend to think. And then the book has been pretty dominant format. And then we moved to ebooks. At this point, I think it's pretty obvious that ebooks have not and will not really in the long run displace hard copy books. Books, magazines, other printed material apparently will continue to play not just a, a minor role like horses in transportation these days, but a uh, pretty big role in communication, even as more and more communication obviously takes place electronically. I have a printer at home. I use it not much. So there's been a change, but books are still there. So what are malls for, right? So we have malls, we, you know, we have stores, we have malls, we have e-commerce. What happens? All these words are to lead up to the following point. Co-location is a really interesting behavioral and economic phenomenon. And malls exist to better manage co-location. Now, of course, you could argue at the very beginning, and I know this living in Minnesota, that the first mall, the first indoor mall anyway, Southdale in Edina, Minnesota, was uh, to better manage winter. Okay, fair enough. And it worked. Mall of America is also here for a reason. And another one of the world's biggest malls is in Edmonton, also for that reason. But it's managing weather, it's managing co-location in that context. Co-location is a funny thing. Co-location happens on its own because businesses benefit from common locations in a bunch of different ways. And so you can think on the retail side in terms of Seville Row, or there's German Street just down the road from Seville Row, does the same thing, Rodeo Drive in Los Angeles, whatever. You can also think in terms of Silicon Valley uh, and Wall Street, that's more talent co-location. Uh, You can think in terms of uh, other examples of where industries all cluster in the same general place. And pretty much every metro area, uh, you know, has uh, certain industries that that dominate. So on the retail side, you know, business owners tend to be afraid of co-location. So my barber, uh, this is like 10 years ago, was so terrified of a hair salon moving in next door that he literally left for another location. Um, I tried to convince him otherwise, but he, he probably would have been better off staying. It would have made that little intersection in St. Paul, Minnesota, a bit of a destination for uh, that kind of stuff. And that tends to be good. That's how Seville Row happens, right? A bunch of people just pop up in the same place and it creates success because it allows uh, basically more awareness and also for people to go shopping all in one place. 
and look at a bunch of stores. That actually works well. Well, the mall is just a more orderly way of doing Seville Row. And you can kind of help the stores to thrive and survive by having common standards for how you do things in a mall. So that's the idea. Now, if stores are going to survive e-commerce and thrive during the period of e-commerce, then it stands to reason they probably will do so by continuing to co-locate in an orderly way. I think malls probably can facilitate that as they have in the past. And part of that, in all likelihood, is more sophisticated omni-channel marketing, right? And of course, uh, the bigger the mall is, the more likely it is to have its own marketing budget and staff. That's been true for a long time. The Mall of America or the West Edmonton Mall or whatever, pick your big mall, uh, Wooddale or something, has had their own marketing platform in addition to the marketing that the stores all have and that the brands have around them. And so even more so, perhaps going forward, we might see that in a more sophisticated approach. It's pretty hard to replicate that kind of thing if all you've got is a city street with a bunch of shops even if they're in the same industry. So I'm not sure if Seville Row has its own marketing association. If it if it does, I'm not sure I'd want to be in charge of that thing. It's hard to corral organizations if they didn't have to sign on to certain conditions on the front end. The mall has the benefit of that as a landlord. And what I mean by that is if you're a place that's been on Seville Row for, what, I don't know, 300 years or something, you can voluntarily join the Common Marketing Association, but you can also quit anytime, and they probably have no power over you. Whereas at a mall, on the front end, everybody has to sign up to certain conditions in terms of how they'll operate. And I, I, would, I would conjecture that going forward, some of that will be participation in certain online marketing and multimodal or omni-channel marketing practices that malls will probably need to roll out in order to compete with each other and also compete in the e-commerce environment. So I do expect to see some more of that and that it could be that part of the renaissance of the mall looking forward is their ability to help stores coordinate more effectively, not just in terms of branding and signage and some of the stuff that they've done and placement of stores, make sure that they're, you know, have different areas of the mall that do certain things but also that they can better coordinate and support omni-channel marketing experiences that shoppers are having and that shoppers will increasingly demand. So looking forward to seeing what happens with the malls and especially interested to see who's going to innovate and be the leader on that stuff. Maybe, uh, maybe it'll be Mall of America up here, or maybe it'll be somebody else that comes up with the right way to do it. Maybe it's app-based, maybe it's not. We'll see. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week. <laughs>